Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. With Memorial Day approaching, we're going to honor military veterans on the program today. We'd love to hear your story as well. Uh, Perhaps you honor the veteran in your family. The number is 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us at upraxcess at gmail.com. Coming up in the program, we're going to be speaking with World War II veteran Edgar Harrell. His, uh, his book is Out of the Depths, in which he recounts his experiences in the sinking of the USS Indianapolis, confronting sharks, hypothermia, the struggle to survive one of the U.S. Navy's greatest catastrophes at sea. Later in the program, Terry Scow, former Utah Director of Veterans Affairs, will discuss how changes in health care are affecting those who fought for our country. Right now, we bring in Mark Greenblatt, author of Valor, Unsung Heroes from Iraq, Afghanistan, and the Homefront. Mr. Greenblatt, uh, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me on. We, we appreciate you being with us. And also joining us is uh, one of the uh, people uh, profiled in the book, Sergeant Buck Doyle, who I understand is a uh, Utah resident. Sergeant Doyle, is, is that true? Yes, it is. Good morning. Good morning. Um, Mr. Greenblatt, I understand uh, you are... An attorney based in Washington, D.C., specializing in criminal and ethics investigations. What led you to write this book? Well, back in 2007 and 2008, I went to an awards banquet, an annual awards banquet, where they honored military heroes. And they brought them up and they told their stories. And these stories were just unbelievable stories of of, of guys doing amazing things in these awful situations. And I kept thinking to myself as I'm hearing these stories, how come no one knows these guys? Uh, we had uh, Sergeant York in World War One. We had Audie Murphy in World War Two. We have guys like that today, but no one knows about them. Um, and so after hearing a few of these stories, I said, why is no one writing about them? And finally I said, why don't you do it? I do investigations for a living where I'm asking hard questions, digging into details and, and documents and examining witnesses, and then writing it up. I can do that here, too. And so that's what I did. I, I just started looking for stories, hunting down stories, and, and uh, interviewing the, the, the men and women involved and writing them up. And uh, that was really the start of Valor. So I understand it took you about five years. Uh, you say it's not that hard to find stories, harder to get these men to, to want to talk about it. Absolutely. Uh, you know, there are thousands of great stories out there of men and women doing, extre- you know, unbelievable things in extreme circumstances. Um, but uh, frankly, the hard part is uh, is not finding them, but getting them to talk about it. And, uh, you know, Buck is a, is a great example. Buck's story is just inspiring. He, he stayed in the direct line of a sniper to help a buddy who had just been shot. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's a, it's an amazing moment. And uh, But getting people like that to talk about it, it's not natural to them. They, uh, they just say, you know, Buck and all the other guys said, I'm just here doing my job. I did what anyone else would have done. Um, and, uh, you know, they deflect credit. They, uh, uh, they minimize the bravery of their actions. And uh, that was something that was just so inspiring to me uh, to hear that over and over again, that these guys really did genuinely believe that they were not heroes. Uh, and so, uh, you know, getting them to talk was certainly a, a difficult, uh, difficult road to hoe. Sergeant Doyle, uh, hero, is that a label you accept? Uh, no, no. Um, I, like Mark said, I did a job. I loved the job. Uh, more importantly, I love the uh, brothers I worked next to, uh, especially uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, I, I, leave, I leave the term heroes for those who uh, sacrifice everything and uh, give their lives for the country. So uh, I'm just a, uh, a U.S. citizen that joined the service. I loved it. And I uh, love to serve. So, what what led you to join the uh, Marine Corps? What, what was it that uh, that you wanted to accomplish? Uh, initially, growing up, uh, watching Rambo, <laughs> initially kicked kicked off the interest. But as I grew up, uh, coming from a military family, but that father was in the army, uh, we traveled all around the world. So it's what I knew. It's what I was uh, used to uh, the culture, used to it. And then, um, after high school, joined the Marine Corps, and then from there, the mentorship really drove me to continue uh, staying in the Marine Corps. And then um, I had a lot of great mentors who were in the special operations in the Marine Corps and Force Recon, and um, they inspired me, they mentored me, they, uh, they guided me through a lot of the indoctrination tests and selections. And uh, the next day I knew, uh, three, four years gone by, and I'm in the teams, I'm in the platoons, and uh, 9-11 comes around, I'm 
35 years old, and then um, I'm out there for the next, you know, 12 years, uh, built in war, hmm. and um, learning about this, uh, this brotherly love, this camaraderie, and um, how strong it is, and, and uh, what we will do for each other in, this, in those environments, and uh, it, it's a beautiful thing. And uh, Mark does a great job of uh, pulling that information out of us and articulating it and writing it, putting it in words. So uh, I'm hoping that people that read Mark's books can walk away with a great understanding and appreciation for that love that's developed um, between these, uh, these warfighters, uh, man and female. And in fact, you say, uh, reading from the book, you have received the Bronze Star Medal and other commendations. You say much more fulfilling is that is that brotherhood. Uh, I value the brotherhood more than anything else. The medal it's always it may be given uh, presented to an individual, but it's it's always uh, that that award that accomplishment is 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 uh, done through uh, more than one person. Hmm. Uh, it, it's it's a team effort. Um, that award to signified uh, the, the team's action that day, and mo- mostly Nick. And Nick, Nick was out there. Um, he was one of few that were out there, and he knew. We all knew the, the environment we were in was not a good one, but he still was out there to do a job. And so uh, any, any award that came out of that, it was uh, definitely for the whole team, and, and especially for Nick. Uh, Mark Greenblatt, I wonder if you could... Mark has uh, a great line in, yeah. in his chapter. I quoted him, uh, and I don't know if he remembers saying this to me, but he said, you know, the, 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 the brotherhood I had with the other guys was much more than anything, you know, any award that some colonel can give me. And uh, I really thought that resonated, that captured the moment, that it was, it was really about the guys, uh, not about, uh, you know, the, the awards. And that was pretty compelling. So, Mark, uh, Buck, Buck's story, Sergeant Doyle's story, is, is compelling, as are the other stories. Uh, stood in, in a sniper's direct line of fire in order to help his friend, Sergeant Nick Walsh, who had been hit. Then he drags Sergeant Walsh to, sorry, to, to safety. A little bit there. Okay. Um, but uh, uh, what I, I thought I heard was uh, about Buck going into the line of fire. There are a couple of individuals that, that, that did that uh, in the chapters of Valor. Um, and, uh, uh, Buck, uh, you know, it's pretty incredible, uh, that when, when standing it directly in sniper's fire, uh, he didn't flee when his buddy Nick Walsh went, went down right next to him. He didn't hide behind the Humvees, uh, that would have given him some measure of protection. He dove down and tried to help Nick. Um, and ultimately Buck got shot, uh, twice, uh, uh, by the sniper, um, as he was trying to save Nick. And it's just this unbelievable story of brotherhood, teamwork, of, of, of actual love. And uh, that was what was so inspiring, so compelling about Buck's story. Sergeant Doyle, what goes through your mind at, at that, that moment? You're, you're trying to save your friend, I guess? That's your, your training goes into effect? What goes through your mind? Um, the training training is, is something you do. Uh, we did a lot of, and... Um, what you hope for is uh, you do enough training, you establish that muscle memory. So when things um, uh, go into effect like that, you, you your training kicks in. Training did kick in, but more importantly, um, uh, that, that love kicked in. Uh, tactically speaking, um, what I did was tactically not correct. I should have took cover, returned fire, and took care of the sniper, but. Again, um, when you establish that bond and camaraderie, you're going to do whatever it takes to save your buddy or to help your buddy. And that is the, the great thing about um, serving in the military, serving in the infantry, special operations. You, you get tight. You develop that love. So what went through my mind, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you. I don't remember. I just know... Um, but what I did was, was strictly from instinctive love. Hmm. Now, you've retired from the Marine Corps. What was the transition like coming home? Uh, for me, it was, uh, it was great. Um, uh, due to the fact that I, um, I had a business, I consulted for uh, the DOD, military, um, different military services, special operations. So I continued to deploy overseas in Afghanistan. I averaged about eight and a half months out of the year. 
uh, out there, uh, continue to mentor, continue to advise and assist the warfighter on the battlefield. So the transition was was uh, was, was a nice one. Um, I recently just finished my fourth year doing that, and now I'm taking a little bit of a break, and I'm concentrating on my uh, my uh, stateside um, uh, work, uh, consulting with different uh, law enforcement and uh, firms and, and, and firearms training. So it's been a great transition. Uh, and Utah State's been a great place to uh, to make that transition, especially Cache Valley. Love it. Yeah, be a beautiful area, and uh, we're we're glad to have you uh, in in our back of the woods here. Thank you, um, Mark Greenblatt. Uh, I wonder. I, I noticed on your website you have updates on on some of these heroes. What, what's I guess there's probably been some variability in transition for these these guys. That's right. Uh, on the website, it has uh, uh, you know updates for folks so they can see what's going on. A couple of them have had difficult transitions uh, back to uh, civilian life, um, and I think they're they're doing well now, uh, getting jobs and that sort of thing. Um, that really helps. Uh, but there have been some rough times for some for a couple of them, uh, where they just had a difficult time and they'd seen and done some things that that uh, uh, were pretty jarring for them. Uh, but uh, but I'm happy to say that they're by and large doing real well. Um, and uh, one of the guys just. Uh, graduated to be a reserve police officer in Michigan, and uh, so we're, uh, you know, everyone's moving forward. Um, one other thing about the website that you mentioned, uh, markleegreenblatt.com, is there is an option to go on there and actually email directly with the heroes, uh, so they can, folks, readers, listeners can actually just uh, click on the website and email men like Buck or the other uh, eight uh, heroes that are profiled in the in the book. Um, the two of them have, uh, you know, tragically passed away, actually after they left military service, uh, but I have an option where you can email their families. Uh, I have a question I always want to ask veterans. So, Sergeant Doyle, what can what can I do? What can people do to uh, to, to reach out to, to veterans? What what would you want people to uh, to say to you to to do for you? Um, I, me personally. Uh... Before you can say or do anything, I think it's you have to earn, you have to appreciate, you have to you know, gain appreciation for well, what our men and women are doing overseas, and that's that's not easy. Um, I, I think uh, doing things like reading Mark's book, um, look, reading some history, some of these events, if you read them enough, you'll start to gain an understanding of what what these men and women are doing overseas, and when they come back, you got to ask yourself. You know, how difficult would the transition be? Have understanding and appreciation for what they've gone through and what they have to deal with now. Um, they're leaving um, an environment where they're, they're, there's uh, supports everywhere. You have your, a person to your left and right who's going to do anything for you. And then abruptly the war is over or your tour is over and you're back home. And you're going back to school or you're getting a job. And now that person to your left and right yeah, isn't the same person or may not have the same perspective or appreciation for anything. So um, understanding that or gaining that understanding and appreciation that, I think is the, 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 primary, the primary thing you can do. And then when you do reach out to a veteran and say, you know, thank you for your service or go out just to help them out, you'll, you'll have a better understanding and, a, and probably have, have a better uh, way of approaching talking or, uh, or uh, inter- engaging with a veteran. Hmm. Mr. Greenblatt, uh, I wonder if you could, in brief, uh, tell us a couple of the other stories. Uh, I'm particularly interested in a, uh, this is illustrative that it ha- doesn't have to be in wartime, a Navy rescue swimmer. I, I couldn't really hear you. Can you say that again? Uh, yes, I wonder if you could tell me another, a couple of the other stories in the book, in brief. Sure. Well, there, uh, there, are, some, there are some great stories. There was um, uh, the... the uh, squad leader, Army Infantry uh, uh, squad leader uh, named Chris Choe, who led uh, his squad deep down into an Afghan valley to take out an insurgent bunker that was shooting up at, at a whole slew of Americans. And Chris led the whole squad down, took some casualties along the way, and as he got up to the very, very end where he was just about to launch this assault with his guys, with his remaining guys, and he realized he was all alone. 
none of the guys had heard him. That final assault, uh, the flanking maneuver to get around to the side, he was all alone. But Chris was going to keep going, so what he did, he pulled up his rifle, and he was ready to go and, con- and continue the assault, by, uh, the assault by himself. And he looked down the scope of his rifle, and he said the insurgents looked like they were, they were so close, they looked like they were eating dinner across a table. And he drew in his breath, and he was ready to shoot, and then his gun jammed. Think about that moment. You know, he's sitting there all alone, completely exposed, very, very close to a well-armed insurgent bunker, and he has no weapon. So what did Chris do? I don't know about you, but I would have curled up in the fetal position and cried for mommy. Chris knelt down, dislodged the round, put in a new magazine, stood up, and then proceeded to take out the entire insurgent bunker almost by himself. So that, that was one of the early ones that I heard very, very early in the process. That was the inspiration behind the book. And then there's another one, Steve Sanford, who, uh, uh, was in a, a firefight in Mosul. He's an army grunt, uh, and uh, he led the evacuation with a number of uh, uh, sergeants in his unit that were carrying out bodies, uh, guys that were injured from this uh, nasty firefight, and Steve was providing this impressive cover. And then one of the guys got injured in, uh, by a uh, sniper, and Chris, uh, Steve ran out into the sniper's fire, much like Buck, uh, and uh, provided CPR, while the sniper was continuing to pound away at, at Steve, Steve said, you know, he understood that he was being shot, but he said he had better things to do than worry about little pieces of metal sticking out of my vest. Um, and, uh, and then eventually uh, Steve stuck out, uh, took out the sniper with his own weapon uh, and then uh, was, was shot and had to be evacuated out. Uh, but it, it's stories like that, just amazing, inspiring stories of, of, of individuals putting themselves in harm's way, uh, taking on greater risk uh, in order to accomplish a mission or, or save a life. We'll, uh, we'll have to leave it there. We're out of time. Uh, we've been talking with Mark Lee Greenblatt, who is author of Valor, Unsung Heroes from Iraq, Afghanistan, and the Home Front. Mr. Greenblatt, uh, good luck with the book. Thank you so much for having us on. This has been great. And Sergeant Buck Doyle, who uh, lives in uh, Logan, uh, believes going to Utah State University, he's uh, one of the soldiers featured in the book. Uh, Sergeant, thank you for your service. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you very much. Have a good day. You too. We're going to take a brief break. Later in the program, we're going to be talking with Terry Scow, who's former executive director of the Utah Department of Veterans Affairs, discussing how changes in health care uh, are affecting those who fought for our country. We're honoring veterans as we're heading toward Memorial Day. After a brief break, we're going to have a, a privilege of talking to a World War II veteran, Edgar Harrell, whose uh, book, Out of the Depths, uh, profiles his uh, uh, harrowing first-person account of surviving the sinking of the USS Indianapolis. More following this break. Waste not. Never water in the hottest part of the day. Only water between 9 p.m. to 6 a.m. to prevent evaporation. And when the kids want to cool off, use a sprinkler in an area where your lawn needs it the most. Waste Not is made possible by the Logan City Public Works Water Conservation Department. Information at loganutah.org slash publicworks. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, with a changing menu including a Mediterranean salad with artichoke hearts, sun-dried tomatoes, and feta. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're honoring our military veterans as we head toward Memorial Day. It's become a tradition here on Axis Utah. Happy to do this. If you have a, uh, a memory, perhaps, reminiscence yourself or a family member, we'd love to hear that. 1-800-826-1495. Or you can reach us by email to upraxis at gmail.com. On July 16, 1945, the USS Indianapolis departed from San Francisco for the American B-29 base on Tinian Island with a top-secret cargo that would ultimately put an end to World War II, components for the first operational atomic bombs. After their record run, Indianapolis successfully delivered her cargo. 
and was ordered to set course from Guam to the Leyte Gulf in the Philippines to prepare for the invasion of Japan. They were traveling unescorted. At 14 minutes past midnight on July 30th, 1945, the ship was hit by two Japanese torpedoes and uh, sent her to a watery grave in 12 minutes. Of the 1,196 men aboard, about 900 sailors and Marines entered the water. No one knew of their plight. Five horrifying days later, 317 men who had survived the terror of shark attacks, hypothermia, and severe dehydration and saltwater hallucinations were accidentally spotted and rescued. One of those survivors tells that incredible story in his book, Out of the Depths, and that is Edgar Harrell, who we welcome to the program right now. Uh, Edgar Harrell, welcome to Access Utah. Thank you, kindly, sir. Uh, so um, this is just an incredible story. It must have been hard, though, to dredge up these these horrifying memories. Why why did you want to write the book? Why did I write the book? The, well, the story needs to be told because it was uh, politically incorrect to speak of uh, the Navy's blunder plus uh, the dropping of the atomic bomb. So they leave it out of the the history book, and very few people. Uh, in comparison to the number we have in America, uh, knew and know about the, the sinking of the USS Indianapolis, and the story needed to be told. And uh, after 9-11, my son says, Dad, we've got to write your story. So we wrote the book, and now it's being republished, and it's going viral all over the country today. Yeah, it's, it's an incredible story. Uh, I wonder if you could, uh, you know, take me there. You're, I believe, uh, on that fateful night, you're on deck you know, because it's it's very hot below uh, below deck. Torpedoes hit, and very quickly you're in the water. Right. We we took two torpedoes. One cut the bow of the ship off. One back close to the marine compartment. A big gaping hole there, no doubt. But no one lived to tell that. But the ship was doomed from the word go. Uh, the, the bow is cut off, and we're moving in the water, uh, you know, some 17 knots, and so we become a funnel. And before I could leave the, the forward area to get back to my emergency station on the quarterdeck, the first 100 yards of the ship is already under. I get to the quarterdeck realizing I don't have a life jacket. My life jacket is down the marine compartment, but... The, uh, I've managed to get me a life jacket there, and now we're desperately waiting for word to come to abandon ship, knowing that all PA system, all communication was knocked out, no power of any kind, and um, finally word trickles down that the good captain had given orders to abandon ship. Well, by now, the water is on the quarterdeck. Normally, the quarterdeck on the starboard side would be eight feet above waterline, but water's on the quarterdeck. The first hundred yards of the ship is already under. The bulkheads are breaking down below, and we're desperate to get off of the ship. But as I go to that uh, starboard side and look out into the blackness of night and seeing that uh, half inch of oil on the water and knowing that uh, this is the end of life, um, wondering if, you know, if I can survive this. And may I say, there's times when you pray, and there's times when you pray, and there is a difference. And there I poured my heart out to the Lord, telling him, I don't want to die, and I want to live. I've got a family back home. There's a certain brunette that said that she would wait for me, and she waited, and we will be celebrating our 67th wedding anniversary this July the 25th. So I wanted to live, but I leave the ship and join maybe 80 buddies out there, and then to find that many of them didn't have life jackets. Many of them had been blown against a bulkhead. They had burns. They had breaks in their bodies, and uh, probably we lost uh, a dozen before daybreak. But when daybreak came that first morning, you could see that we had company. Uh, there were big fins swimming all around us, and out of fairness to them, they were not attacking us, but it was wasn't long until some boy would be thrashing out in the water by himself.
yourself and you'd hear a blood-curdling scream and you'd look and you'd see that capon jacket goes under and then like a fish cork momentarily it comes to the surface and then all that blood and all the sharks are coming well you dare not to go and check your buddy but sometime later, maybe you check some that had been uh, gored and you find that maybe the bottom torso was gone or it had been disemboweled or it lost a leg or an arm. And so that's going to take place many, many times. Uh, the next day, the first day, uh, uh, we had the sharks. The second day, still sharks. But uh, we are desperate for water. We're swimming nearly constantly, 110 degree weather but uh, on the second day we have a little rain cloud that comes over and you open your mouth heavenward and you get a, a few tablespoons full of water but not much water but some water and then by the third day at noon now our number has dwindled to where there's only 17 of us still alive clinging together and praying and uh, I can hear that one sailor pray today God if you're out there I don't want to die I've got a son back home I've never seen we have to have your help or we can't make it and so we are desperate for help and we are praying and uh, would you believe it that the Lord comes through and he answers our prayer in the next day so uh, as you're you know day one day two day three what are your thoughts do you do you think that people are searching for you or, or I guess you have to have hope no Yes, no one's looking for us. Uh, the Navy had sent us out in harm's way, and when we uh, gave our, our SOSs, they ignored them. And uh, uh, it wasn't until uh, five days later when uh, providentially the first survivor was spotted and picked up that the Navy or the world even knew that the Indianapolis had been sunk. So we fought the Navy, the Pentagon, the Washington for 50 years, and finally after archives were, were open, now we have sufficient evidence that we take it then and we go before the Armed Services Committee and we get a joint resolution and President Clinton signs it. Uh, they had court-martialed a good captain, one of uh, 700 uh, ships lost in, uh, in World War II, and they had the audacity to court-martial a good captain that was not guilty in any way. It was a miscarriage of justice. It was a cover-up in every way, and we proved it. I prove it in my book, Out of the Depths. I get people every day that ordered my book, and they uh, they uh, praise us for uh, standing guard for a good captain. It was too late for him because he committed suicide in uh, 1968. But we uh, can say that we fought for our good captain and still fight for him in my book and other books that have been written about that ordeal. Uh, from your book, I, I hadn't known this. I, I know knew some of the details of the USS Indianapolis, but that your your ship carried um, uranium for atomic bombs. You, you have you you support President Truman in that decision. I understand. Uh, we picked up the components of Fat Man and Little Boy, July 16, 1945. Ten days later, we delivered a cargo with that we did not know what we had to our B-29 based on Tinian Island, and uh, it was dropped at Nagasaki and Hiroshima on August 6 and August the 9th, and uh, the, the Japanese were aboard the Missouri in, uh, in August the 12th. So, yes, the history of the USS Indianapolis, the largest casualty at sea in the history of the U.S. Navy. We lost 880 of our buddies. Only 317 survived. There's 36 of us still living today. We have a reunion in Indianapolis this coming July 24, 5, and 6, and there will be about 15 of those 36 able to come to the reunion. But we'll have uh, the second and third, fourth watch uh, of uh, our families, and we'll have 400 plus people there as we celebrate uh, of course uh, as your generation gets older um, some stories are potentially lost I imagine you would tell your 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 fellow soldiers to tell their stories yes 
Uh, our books will still be uh, around to tell the story, but sad to say, you know, at 90 years old, I won't be around too much longer. Uh, what do you think, uh, do you think the government can do more to help returning veterans? What do you think about the, you know, the younger veterans? Well, I think, uh, I think that our, our government has basically turned co turncoat uh, on the on the veterans, and I could wish that we could get back to uh, a little civilry and uh, and uh, pay more respect to our servicemen that are giving their all even today uh, for our well-being and for our freedom. Our freedom is slipping away from us. I'm afraid. What what's your What's your message to your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren? What, what do you most want to tell them? Well, um, I, I think one thing is, uh, number one, get an education. And uh, you aren't going to go very far in life today unless you have an education to be able in the new, uh, um, new tech age to, uh, to survive. And that's the first thing. I, I talk to a lot of young men thinking about maybe getting into, into service, and I would advise them, if you can uh, stay in school and get uh, a college education, do that. Uh, if you aren't able to make it and you have a desire to get into service, get into service, you'll learn to trade, and after 20 years, you can still get an education. And so that's basically my advice. And I, I travel all over the country telling the story today. In fact, I've got a full schedule the rest of the year of telling of God's providence in my life and what happened in the sinking of the USS Indianapolis and what happened after we dropped the atomic bomb and brought about the end of World War II. Uh, just one more thing, um, Mr. Harold. Uh, an interesting note in the notes here. You apparently remain in touch with the granddaughter of Commander Hashimoto, the, the man who ordered the sub to fire on your ship? Oh, yes. That's another uh, wonderful happening uh, in that I have met the granddaughter of Commander Hoshimoto that sank us, and uh, also his great-granddaughter. And uh, at our reunion this past year, the great-granddaughter came up in the front of me, and uh, the granddad that I am, I reached out my uh, hands to receive her. She came to me. I picked her up and set her on my knee, and then the mother, the granddaughter, then Hoshimoto came up. Uh, we stood and uh, and embraced and shed tears, and I gave her a kiss on the cheek and to say, I love you, and uh, we have to stay in touch. And so that, yes, is a wonderful reconciliation uh, in both of our hearts and many, many Japanese people that I come in contact with. They, many would tell me, thanks for dropping the atomic bomb because it would have been an Iwo Jima a million times over had we landed and, uh, and had we given uh, the last uh, ounce of our blood for our country. But in dropping the atomic bomb, uh, look at Japan today and uh, look at America today. Yes. Hmm. Well, we're, we're, we're out of time for this fascinating story. The book is Out of the Depths, uh, a fascinating account of uh, Edgar Harrell's surviving. Yes, the... I might say that they can order it off of my web, and I'll sign it for them, too, www.indysurvivor.com. All right, uh, indysurvivor.com. Edgar Harrell is retired from the uh, U.S. Marine Corps. Uh, he went on to uh, uh, operate a distributorship for Pella Window Company in Rock Island, Illinois, for 35 years. And uh, I guess most importantly, he and his wife, uh, Ola, have two children, eight grand grandchildren, six great-great-great grandchildren. And uh, more information at IndieSurvivor.com. A pleasure to uh, speak with you. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for your service. Thank you so kindly, sir. And uh, following a break, we're going to continue this discussion as we honor our veterans heading into Memorial Day. We're going to be talking with uh, Terry Scow, who is uh, former director of Veterans Affairs for the state of Utah. We'll be talking about, uh, among other things, uh, health care for our veterans. You're welcome to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495, or you can uh, reach us at upraxis at gmail.com or following the break. So I will look for you 
Mystical is one of the unexpected words the singer-writer Roseanne Cash uses to describe her father, Johnny Cash. But it also applies to this daughter's mind and spirit. On the next On Being, Roseanne Cash, Time Traveler. I'm Krista Tippett. Please join us. Sunday night at 8 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Humanities Council, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement in the humanities, online at utahhumanities.org. We conclude the program with conversation with Terry Scow, who uh, retired last year as the uh, uh, executive director of the Utah Department of Veterans Affairs. We're going to be talking about, among other things, how changes in health care are affecting those who fought for our country. Uh, Terry Scow, welcome back to the program. Thank you, and always thank you for your programs on veterans. I, I think they're so informative, and I love listening to that uh, World War II veteran, 90 years of age, and his great story and reminding folks to tell their stories. That is so important. Yeah, uh, and uh, it's a reminder as well that, you know, Korean War veterans, uh, Vietnam veterans are, are, you know, getting up there in age as well. So it's uh, important to tell the stories. It is. I That was one of the themes I had virtually everywhere I spoke across the state. Get out of tape recorder, tell your story so your children and grandchildren can know of your uh, great service to our country. Did you uh, did you find there was a resistance to that? Uh, I, I especially, at least anecdotally, uh, have found that World War II veterans especially were kind of reticent to, to tell the stories. They, it seems like they just came home and got on with their, their lives. Uh, uh, maybe there's been some an opening up recently? I think so. Uh, many of the World War II guys were so humble and so modest, and my dear friend George Wallen uh, uh, was certainly that way. But, uh, you know, if the grandchildren or the children will just grab a tape recording it down and start asking them a few questions. When did you win? Where did you serve? What did you do? It's amazing how that'll open up the conversation and preserving that because if not, then it's only uh, people in the news business who will tell of hist- uh, historic events as opposed to those who were there. They saw it firsthand. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about your service, uh, it, starting with what, what I think you served in, um, was it the uh, armies, was it special forces? Yeah, I, I did, yeah. They lowered the standards, so they yeah. let me do that. You know, <laughs> yeah. They've actually increased the standard since then. Yeah, I was not a terribly uh, smart kid, to be frank with you. I actually enlisted for the infantry during uh, the uh, Vietnam time and uh, then was fortunate to uh, be accepted uh, into the uh, special forces program and served with the uh, 10th Special Forces in, in uh, Fort Devens, Mass. And then a friend of mine came down on orders for Vietnam, and at that time our assignments were handled by special categories, so I called and requested to uh, be put on orders to Vietnam, and then he and I traveled cross-country and went to Vietnam, served with the 5th uh, Special Forces Group in Vietnam, and uh, uh, then later served again with the 10th and with the 25th Infantry Division. And really I do veterans... Uh, work today, and I've done it for many, many years of volunteer, and they paid me for a few years, but at the end of the day, for a kid who grew up on the wrong side of Austin, the military is good to me, gave me an education, allowed me to buy a home, and serving veterans is noble work, and uh, it's certainly been one of the highlights of my life to do that. Is there a central theme as to why people get into the military? Like, you know, some people go for opportunities, but it... Uh love of country, what, uh, what is it that gets people into the military? Well, the, the words that ring in my mind so often is duty, honor, country. Uh, many folks will join because of the educational benefits. There's no doubt that, uh, as I've talked to some of the folks uh, who are even in the National Guard, uh, the educational benefits are so great. My own son actually uh, went in. He was an Arabic linguist, uh, went to DLI. And the GI Bill helped him get a degree in Middle Eastern Studies from the U and then went on to uh, get a law degree from Gonzaga. So it, it, it is a great equalizer, the, uh, the, the GI Bill benefits, because education is so expensive. So, But after 9-11, many folks joined because of, uh, of patriotism. Uh, and uh, sometimes when the economy is not well, folks uh, will go in or remain in until it stabilizes. So there's a mix to... Uh, rationale why folks will join. Uh, 
Um, uh, looking at a 2003 editorial you wrote for the Deseret News, this line uh, stands out. You say, it's been said that for those who have had to fight for it, freedom has a flavor the protected never know. Well, you know, that is so true. In fact, I said that uh, at uh, an event uh, for Vietnam Veterans Day that was recently passed. Uh, that uh, that statement was actually on the headquarters of the uh, 5th Special Forces Group in the Trang. And it's a, um, it's a phrase that has stuck with me, and it, and it has great significance to me. I wonder what your—I uh, know you served in Vietnam, and so it's, it's kind of the height of this— this dual view that I'm about to bring up, and that is, you know, if soldiers are sent out to fight wars, and sometimes not all the country agrees with the with our need to be there. Well, you know, that's true. That's one of the challenges that my uh, many of my fellow Vietnam veterans experienced when they came back. They were they were treated poorly. Some were spit upon, and of course, my byword there is hate the war as much as you want, but uh, don't hate the warrior. And I think that uh, that bad experience has caused many of the Vietnam veterans who make up the largest group of veterans today uh, to uh, help uh, with the more welcoming attitude of the uh, returning service members. You know, as folks go through airports, as I often do, uh, thanking those uh, young folks for their service. So I think the attitude today is much better than it was when it came back from Vietnam. But uh, it's never appropriate, in my view, to uh, treat those service members uh, poorly. I want to talk a bit about uh, care for returning veterans. Uh, wonder where we are at this point, especially with regard to veterans in 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 Utah. We we have uh, changes overall in health care with Obamacare. We have a debate in Utah right now over whether to expand Medicaid coverage, uh, and I wonder if if this is having an effect on veterans' care. Well, I think we're very fortunate in Salt Lake City. Uh, you know, I uh, work very closely with the folks at the VA Medical Center. In fact, I actually get my care at the uh, Salt Lake uh, VA, George Wallen VA. And uh, the uh, quality of care is quite good. Uh, Steve Young, who has been the director there for a few years, uh, is uh, of such quality that they have sent him to Illinois uh, to uh, deal with some issues there. They have now sent them down to Phoenix to uh, deal with some of the issues there. Uh, the, the, the general consensus is once you're in the VA, the, 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 the care is quite good. The challenge becomes uh, for uh, the delays, and that's the heart of this, uh, uh, this uh, issue going on down in Phoenix. And uh, uh, for those uh, who would care, uh, I... Uh, I've met uh, General Shinseki many times, spent a lot of time with him, and uh, I've looked in his eyes and know that he does care. But it's important for understand for people to understand that the VA is a monster organization. 300-plus uh, thousand employees, you know, one of the largest health care systems in the world. And uh, one of the challenges that you have is that there is, it is an entrenched bureaucracy. And uh, former uh, Defense uh, Secretary Gates uh, uh, commented the same thing recently, that one of the biggest challenges he had, even as Secretary of Defense, is uh, mandating that things happen, and the bureaucracy uh, will often not be as quick or drag their feet. And it is virtually impossible for the Secretary to go to every scheduling clerk throughout the system and uh, the anecdotal evidence is, and of course, uh, I agree with the Secretary, we need to wait for the IG's report, but there, the allegations are that there were two sets of records. One of them is uh, the official electronic record when a veteran calls up and they want to be seen, and the standard is they're supposed to be seen within 14 days. And then the claim is is that there was another written set of records that were kept. And, of course, the IG's investigation will determine that, but... Uh, uh, apparently, uh, there were bonuses for folks for meeting these standards. And if you argue that you want accountability, uh, Secretary Shinseki has mandated accountability on the claims processing, the electronic system that they've done. Uh, General Allison Hickey has been at the forefront of the electronic processing of claims, which is bringing us into the 21st century. 
they want high accuracy and they want them processed quickly. Same is true within the healthcare realm where veterans need to be seen in a timely fashion. And uh, especially care is a challenge because the VA doesn't have, in my view, enough specialty docs. And so those, uh, those uh, weights are longer than what they should be. And at the end of the day, it may well be that Congress has to appropriate more funds to allow the uh, VA to hire more specialty care because a lot of dollars have been thrown at the mental health thing. I mean, literally tens of thousands of social workers, psychologists, and mental health workers have been hired by the VA to a deal with the uh, PTSD issue for folks. And I will put in a plug here, as I did uh, when I last spoke with the secretary, that we actually uh, have a vet center in St. George, Utah. We have one uh, down in Provo, and we have one in Salt Lake City. But we need one up in Ogden, where I live, because vet centers provide mental health counseling to combat veterans. And it's a free zone, if you will. If you're worried about security clearance, there's no records kept. If you are worried about your next promotion, there's no records kept. And uh, for, you know, considering there's about 45,000 veterans in northern Utah, we need a vet center up here to provide that uh, mental health counseling. So I continue to put that plug in, and uh, uh, vets uh, are struggling mental health-wise. Uh, go to uh, a VA vet center walk in, they will help you, and they even do military sexual trauma. So one of the best things the VA does is the uh, mental health stuff. And the VA is a world leader when it comes to uh, combat veteran uh, mental health issues. The VA is a recognized leader in gerontology care uh, for elderly veterans. No one knows more about it. No one cares for more elderly veterans than the VA. So... Uh, do these issues need to be answered? Of course they do. But uh, I say to those uh, who uh, want to put someone else in there, does anyone believe that putting in a new person now with a couple of years, a little over left of this administration's time, that a new person could get in, could get up to speed in enough time and have enough moral authority to fix the problems versus a retired four-star combat veteran? who understands the challenges and could hold folks accountable, for me, I would take uh, General Shinseki over a new person who won't even know where the bathroom is for 6 to 12 months. Hmm. We're talking with Terry Scow, who's uh, an advocate for veterans, uh, former director of the uh, of Veterans Affairs for, for Utah. We just have a couple minutes left. I wonder, uh, for any of us, if we uh, maybe befriend, encounter a veteran who perhaps seems to be struggling how best to how best to help how best to get that veteran to to resources i think you know just encouraging them to uh, go to the va and uh, if they don't want to go to the medical center or to one of the clinics proper the uh, the vet centers that i spoke of just a minute ago are walk-in places you can actually walk in there no appointment necessarily they have counselors there many of them are combat veterans and at these locations i mentioned st george provo uh, and uh, in Salt Lake, uh, you can see them. But I think the important thing is encourage them to get in and get helped. And I spoke with a veteran just yesterday who wants to enroll. And I will say to many of your listeners, you can actually enroll in the VA online. But there are service officers uh, employed by the veterans organizations, DAV, VFW, American Legion, the state veterans office. And they travel around the state from Logan to St. George, helping veterans enroll in VA health care, helping veterans file their claims. So get a hold of the uh, state veterans officer. website is veterans.utah.gov, and uh, they will help elderly veterans uh, who might want to get nursing care or younger vets. So great resources there and programs like yours help to educate the family members and the veterans of the benefits that are available to them and uh, the, the biggest challenge we had was that many vets are not availing themselves of the health care. We remain behind the curve in terms of enrollees in the health care system and people applying for um, uh, service-connect disabilities. So programs like this help us get the word out. And as always, my, uh, my, my, my final word is thanks to those who have served, and uh, please record your story and uh, 
to the family members uh, and especially to the spouses. She also serves who waits. Yeah, definitely. I echo those sentiments, and thank you, Terry Scow, for your service. Uh, uh, Terry Scow uh, is former executive director of the Utah Department of Veterans Affairs. He's a veterans advocate, and uh, that concludes our uh, program on uh, veterans. We do uh, about this time every year. Uh, tomorrow, we're going to uh, take a look at troubles at the Salt Lake Tribune. Uh, there are people who are sounding the alarm that a new joint operating agreement uh, perhaps is putting the Tribune in jeopardy. That's tomorrow on the program. In the meantime, thanks for listening today. Commentator Thad Box. Each morning, I'm awakened by a National Public Radio reporter giving news of the day. People are dying in wars not of our making. Floods, tornadoes, ice storms, or some climatic event has devastated homes and taken lives. Congress is stalled by party loyalty. The legislature passes message bills and lets our schools struggle. We have to import people for high-tech jobs. Sometimes I just want to pull the cover over my head and stay in bed. But we're still the richest country in the world. We have something to offer. We're living on the work of our founding fathers and the shining example of the greatest generation. Each of us has a role in regaining our country's greatness, or we can watch it deteriorate and do nothing. Years ago, my preacher brother-in-law asked me to talk to a group of ranchers in a country Methodist church. After my talk, I copied a handwritten sign above the door in that church. Years later, I found similar quotations attributed to both Edward Everett Hale and Helen Keller. But the country church version of that saying changed my life and has been on the wall of my many offices for the last 50 years. It says simply, I'm not everyone, but I'm one. I can't do everything, but I can do something, and what I can do, I ought to do. Our generation's goal and our obligation is to provide justice and fairness in this generation, make the world better for our grandkids, emphasize long-term stability over short-term gain, and leave options open for future uses we cannot even imagine. We can't do everything, but what we can do, we ought to do. Let's get on with doing it. This is Thad Box. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Apogee Instruments, a Cache Valley company building small precision sensors that support global research in sustainable food production, renewable energy, and climate change. KUS. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access 